0: Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson.
1: Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to discuss motivating students with three distinguished guests. Our first guest will focus on young adolescents. Do you remember those hormone raging years? Walk into any middle school during the changing of classes and the noise volume and energy will surpass most other settings, including high schools. There are teachers who thrive in middle school settings and those who loathe it. My first guest will share his expertise at motivating young adolescent students and helping their teachers to thrive. Rick Warmley is an education consultant, veteran educator, and author. His most recent book, The Collected writings so far, of Rick Warmley, was published by the Association for Middle-Level Education in 2013. Rick, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Jonathan. I'm glad to be here.
1: I appreciate having you. Uh, Rick, let's start out by um, what is your definition of motivation?
0: Well, you know, motivation to one can be very different than it is to another. But in general, it's this growing sense that I want to partake. I want to involve myself, which means I'm going to invest time, energy, maybe creativity uh, into whatever the task is before me. But it is something that is very internal. It's very rarely something that comes from outside or extrinsic in its motivation, in, in motivation. So I would hope that people would see it as a kind of a revealing or, a, or an opening inside a child rather than something we do to a child.
1: Yeah. And, and that. Speaks to, uh, your recent article in Education Leadership where you mentioned that what teachers may enjoy doing may very well not be what's enjoyable to, I'm paraphrasing of course, to the students.
0: Yeah, that's true. And it's interesting, um, you know, one of the greatest things that we've discovered in the last few years in research in education was about teacher dispositions. And quite often, teachers who are highly effective have a sense of empathy from where the child is viewing the lesson or the experience at hand. So if we can somehow step outside ourselves and not fall prey to that intellectual bias, you know, we've we've taught this for a number of years. We've taught it several periods a day. It's so clear in our heads. Why can't our kids see it as clearly as we do? We almost get frustrated by that, but we have to remember it's their first time. And if we begin to think about, What motivated us if we were sitting in those seats? What would engage us? The idea of being a a storyteller and story receiver, the idea that learning is really an act of creation, not just an act of consumption. All these things come to bear, and we realize, oh, now I see how to really engage the students. And so many times, uh, you know, teachers say, well, students today in middle school or young adolescents aren't motivated, but really they're very similar to the way we were when we were those ages. And we've just kind of forgotten what it was like. So one of my big pushes lately is, is that sense of empathy to remember it's their first
1: time. That's, that's well, well stated. In fact, uh, years ago, uh, I read a poem. Um, it was an it was, uh, ancient uh, Japanese poem. It was over 3,000 years old. And it was speaking about uh, teenagers or adolescents and the poem could have been read at any time in history because every generation seems to have the same opinion of adolescents coming up that they were so different than we are when in reality they were probably exactly as we are
0: well you know it 's interesting we 've lived a much longer portion of our lives, and yet you know every month of an adolescence or young adolescent's life is a much larger chunk of his life, so there 's a lot of transformation, but we have this perspective that You know, that crumpled love note really is not the end of the world. But to them, it is. So the roller coasters are very high and very low. Very rarely is it just that moderated middle level. It's really, really extreme. And and we have to be comfortable with them laughing at the unlaughable, crying at the uncryable, and not holding it against them. Because it's the nature of where they should be developmentally at that point to have those Almost to us, irrational responses to what should be a very rational thing.
1: Absolutely. In fact, I just uh, took my 13 year old nephew. I have about 17 nieces and nephew, but I, I guess my sister wanted to get rid of him for a weekend or for a week, <laughs> so she, yeah. she let him go on vacation with me. And when I didn't allow him to buy a more than twenty dollars for a, a flimsy T shirt, I had to spend the rest of the day watching him mope. You know, because oh. for him, <laughs> so well, for him, know, like. That- yeah, I
0: mean, it, it's exactly right. I mean, when when we're trying to assimilate everything, our own expectations, societal expectations, schools, everything, all those different things, and we don't have the neural pathways quite yet developed, the number one default is frustration and a, little form, a moderate form of depression because we just can't assimilate all of it and, and be everything to everyone that we want to be and, and also be something to ourselves. So you're exactly right. Um, you know, my wife is not in education, but in a few times our own children... Have acted up during middle school, she'll toss over me and say, Well, you're the expert, do something. <laughs> and I want to say, Well, he's your child tonight, but not my, no, we don't really do that, but it, it's something like, it, it's a frustration that I know.
1: Yes. Um, and I'm so glad my son is now 24 because those are some tough years. Um, yeah. yeah. So, Rick, what's the relationship between student mo- motivation and grades?
0: Oh, that's really interesting. You know, a lot of people who are untrained in motivation overly rely on grades for classroom management and student motivation. And I would beg them, please, I implore them, I implore universities to teach this in schools of teacher preparation that, you know, kids, you know, an F does not motivate a kid to hunker down and really dig in and do better. It actually pushes young adolescents away from investing in the teacher and the class. So we can't think, oh, there's a lot of fire under his, his rear end. He'll really do it now. No. With every single low-grade a child in middle school gets, we have to extend an emotional bridge to walk them back across to the same level of personal investment that they were prior to receiving the low grade. And then we have students who have a string of zeros and Fs. What kind of an emotional bridge will we have to build? So with every low grade, we're going to have to extend ourselves. It's an overt reaching out to the student, not think our grades are really going to teach them anything, and a middle school high grade motivates some students some of the time. But if you listen to that, that's some of the sum. That's a minority. So the idea that, oh, I need to motivate children in my class. I need to engage them. Please, oh, please, let's get the word out there. We don't overly rely on grades to do that for us. Now, are there grading policies that help a child save face to avoid humiliation, to engender hope. Yeah, some teachers though fall into the trap that they see grades as a gotcha enterprise. You know, I've caught you making mistakes. Uh, you've demonstrated all these deficiencies, and I've documented it for all the stakeholders. Come back tomorrow for more of the same rejection. It'll be fun. I trust me. No, that's not going to fly. What we want to do is we make sure that we teach to engender hope. It is a visceral, physiological reaction, and yet some people who teach middle school say. Look, don't bother me with the touchy, feely, emotional stuff. I just have to teach my curriculum. Students don't have to like it. And to those teachers, I say you are this close, pinching my fingers together very tightly, to educational malpractice. Wow. Really just a hair's breadth away because 95% of everything that goes into a young adolescent's brain goes to emotional response centers first. Not the cognitive analytical centers. And the real craft of a teacher is to engage the kids, but to get them to see and experience their learning cognitively, but also emotionally in a very constructive way. So, are there policies you can put in place through grading that would create that culture of, it's okay if I take a risk and I fail because I can recover from it? Yeah. I mean, you can do the redos and retakes without the loss of full credit. You can say, all right, F-A-I-L, man, fail. That's first attempt in learning. So it's mm-hmm. not this thing to be avoided. It's the thing to be embraced. Really, truly, in one of the, the best all-time learning experiences is, is to recover from failure, not to be labeled for the failure. Yet a lot of teachers think, well, if I report the failure, that's the motivating act. It isn't. If f and zeros really motivated and maintained hope in students, we have a lot more hopeful, motivated, high-achieving middle school students. So it's really the recovery from failure that teaches and motivates, not the label of it. So that's just one of the many, many policies we can use in middle school uh, to create that sense, that culture of hope and motivation, rather than destroy it. Does that make sense?
1: It does, and in fact, you touch on something that you're touching on it in a different way, but something that we've found we as educators and studying um, international success of students. Um, that they truly teach to mastery. And your uh, description of, you know, uh, letting students get redos and improve is really teaching them toward mastery, which is what uh, the, the co- countries we're competing against tend to do uh, more naturally. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah. And all this big push about resilience, perseverance, stick to itiveness, building that up, the tenacity in the next generation comes from that kind of approach. You didn't get it right the first time, now you can do it again. Your homework was not a high-stakes uh, place where I'm going to give you a letter grade in your homework. I'm just going to give you a checker zero and narrative feedback because the descriptive feedback is motivating, not the label for that particular piece. Here's a safe place for you to wrestle and really stretch yourself without fearing the status quo. A lot of kids in middle school there are 4.0 A straight-A students Spend the majority of the day trying to protect the reputation as being the child who always gets it first or is mm. the easiest. And therefore, they don't want to do anything to, to jeopardize that status quo. It's too fragile. And then you have other kids who are worried that, gosh, someone today might find out I'm a fake and that I really know what I'm doing, and this is kind of beyond me. Oh, I hope I belong. 80% of successful middle school experiences is just the assurance that I belong. This is the right teacher. These are the right students for me. Um, How do I fit? In middle school, we're in that that thing we hopefully grow out of as adults, but some of us still hold on to that, that ceaseless comparison. Who am I to these people? Who am I to this, this culture? Who am I to this world? Who am I to where I was just last week? And we have to just Again, there's that empathy. We remind ourselves as we work with them that we're on the front line of humanity. Emotions are going to be raw. But that's kind of where they are is that, that insecurity is that we move through it. Mm,
1: good point. Now, there is some research out there that shows that... Um children today, I think this research is done with much younger children, but that because every information is being, um, pretty much flashed at them, that they, their brains are wired differently, that they take in information in short chunks. And, um, so my, my question to you is not everything that they have to learn is in short chunks. So how, how would students deal with the difficulties of, like, reading something difficult or long-term projects, things that are not coming to them in short chunks like text, text messages?
0: You know, it's interesting. I, you know, I've seen some of the same research. Yeah, we have kids who sit for hours and hours and hours and do the same thing as long as they find it meaningful. You know, they'll spend six and seven hours going through different levels of a game system because mm. they're getting feedback on how to improve and go the next way. They'll read, uh, you know, 900-page books, the Harry Potter series, but many other series in just a few days. And they'll Absolutely. spend hours and hours into it because there's something meaning. So I think teachers kind of forget. And in America, I think that we have a real problem in that we tend to present things as, and, and mastery and make sure kids are engaged, purely at sense-making. Did this make sense to you? Is it clear to you? Okay, now we're moving on. But the real tenacity comes with meaning-making, and that's really where you're going to get the greatest results in your test achievement scores. The idea that they could make sense of it, but they could also recode it in terms of something they found familiar in their own lives, or they can make an analogy between their favorite sport and the limbic system or some other body, bodily system in their health class. That's powerful. So... One is that it, it, meaning making. If it's meaningful, kids will sit and do it. Second thing is, if they can trust that nobody will humiliate them and they'll keep them from humiliating themselves, that's very, very, very powerful. So that emotional trust in the person who's actually running the class, who's the leader. And third, nothing motivates like success, uh, I found. So we start with small chunks, then we add to it and add to it. And eventually, the kids develop a sense of competence. And that's huge for middle school kids. In fact, you know, if if they're experiencing competence every day, they'll pretty much go wherever you want to go. You can take them to the moon. <clears throat> but if they're experiencing a class where they never, ever experience competence, it's always just proof that they are worthy of rejection, that they fall short. Well, they'll give up much more quickly. That's I've had it. students who will spend 30 minutes on a math problem and they finally get it, and there's that moderate euphoria yes, this works, it all fits together. And the number one response they get back is, Okay, 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 give me another one.
1: Exactly. Rick, this is great information, and I want to continue in this vein. But at this time, we need to take a short break. But stay tuned, we'll be back with more right after this.
0: Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson.
1: Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Rick Warmerly, on the topic of motivating students. Rick, just before the break, you touched on something that I'm very passionate about. We were discussing the, the the research or the belief that students today uh, can't really sit for long periods of time and focus, and you mentioned the fact that if it's of interest to them, they can sit for considerable amounts of time, and I observed that in my own son when he was 15. He was labeled, uh, you know, lazy, learning disabled, you, you name it, he was given those labels, but I would always notice that he was able to take very complex, at least for me, very complex video games. And he and his friends could go the entire weekend falling asleep at the controls at two in the morning, you know, focused in mastering those video games. And, you know, what you spoke to about motivation kind of speaks to that. If there's, if there's an interest, they will sit and focus. And you also uh, touched on the fact that um, there are certain components that are necessary for kids to be motivated to learn, and that is Knowing when you reach a level of mastery, you know, you enter at a place you're comfortable with, you make your mistakes, you learn from them, you grow, you get to a level of mastery, and that contributes to the motivation of learning. Um, Would I just share, sum up kind of what you shared before the break?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot of research out there from many, many folks, even back as early as the 70s and the 80s, that – when kids know the target and they know where they are in relation to the target at any given moment in the journey. So, for example, any given moment in the lesson plan, do they know what the, tar- the academic goal is and where they are in relation to that? It turns out they hit the target dramatically more often. So, for example, if I write B+, plus, very good, in a student's paper, it's not very motivating. It's very judgmental, and judgment and evaluation shut down that engagement. But if I say I noticed you used all the techniques for successful introductions, and as a result, I could not read the, I could not wait to read the rest of your paper. That's very exciting, very engaging. Alternatively, if they did something that was a weakness, you know, and I point out, I noticed you did not use any of the techniques for successful introduction. I noticed that you did not have your notes on the left side of the double entry journal, so you couldn't easily access them when you're working on the right side of the paper, even for your applications. In other words, I point out something that was a real struggle, a real problem. The student is much more willing to embrace that, to internalize that, to learn from it, to engage in it, and not see it as threatening when it comes across as descriptive, supportive feedback. But if it comes across just as, hey, this particular effort, that's a D minus. Well, that just turns them off. There's a hostility there. They develop an irrational rationalization. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that descriptive feedback is huge. And I would say to you, the kids know they like to play the games over and over again with multiple levels because they're getting that feedback, and they're able to. It's, it's such a feedback they're able to use it and adjust their next effort. So the capacity to revise my effort in light of critique and be assessed and accredited anew is particularly powerful to those students. You hit the nail on the head with that.
1: Yeah, and I be, and I believe uh, several years ago that uh, cur- curriculum developing company companies such as Pearson started to create their online curriculum to model um, the tenants that work for video games uh, in order to keep uh, children motivated in, uh, in their academics. Um, why, is, why is teacher training and student motivation so key to students' achievement?
0: Oh, wow. Well, you know, a lot of teachers, you know, one of the biggest worries when they go into teaching is, oh, how am I going to maintain the class? How am I going to manage the class? What if students are unruly? What if they have disruptions in the class? You know, they they feel relatively okay because it seems like an intellectual exercise uh, in terms of I'll design my lesson, do this, this, and this. But what happens when it goes awry? The problem is learning is a messy enterprise, but we're always seeking some kind of schematic you know, an orderly sequence through things, but learning is disorderly. So there's always that little bit of conflict. So do we see deviation from the lesson plan as a burden, as an irritant, as a fearsome thing, an anxiety building thing, or do we see it as a positive? But are we, that means, do we have the competence to really grab that as a teachable moment and run with it? Well, one, we might have an insecurity about our own knowledge content. We don't see how things relate to each other. We're barely a page ahead of the kids sometimes when we first started teaching a, a new subject. Hmm. But two, we, we, you know, a lot of teachers think, well, I've taught for 15 years, so I must know how to do that. And they do the same thing every year when you have to realize you're teaching a whole new set of humans every single year. And you might not have it totally ready. And are you open to revising yourself in light of a new perspective? That's one of the signs of intellectual, and I hope that all teachers would consider themselves as intellectual, hence revisable, in light of new perspective or new evidence. So one of the things that we can do in schools of teacher preparation is to really have a a whole separate course just on how do you motivate students of that age to, one, engage, but, two, to develop self-advocacy and self-efficacy, to really get a sense of self-concept. And this is not going soft. This is actually increasing the demanding nature of teaching at the middle school level and and students learning and experiencing middle school. So, you know, you might say, well, you know, middle school, isn't that just a junior version of high school? Not even close. There's a very unique set of skills um, and characteristics of the 10 to 15-year-old, which nationwide is what we refer to as young adolescents. So we're talking grades, fifth grade through ninth grade in most places, that's what we're talking about. should have its own unique certification. And you've got groups, like you mentioned early on, the Association for Middle Level Education, AMLE, who can provide a lot of that research. Other groups can do that, too. But the idea that I should be able to circle in my lesson plans where my expertise in the unique nature of young adolescents is being expressed is huge. Otherwise, you should doubt my lesson's effectiveness and thereby me as a teacher.
1: Mm. And 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 when reading your article, I think I shot you an email that I wish I read it when I was teaching middle school, uh, because I I've taught K through twelve, and I'm I'm learning now that uh, techniques I use with my K through uh, K through five students would have been very effective with my middle school students. Uh, For example, I used to you know my kindergarten first second grade kids after a lesson, I would ask them what. Could we have done, or what could I have done to make the lesson better? And you'd be amazed at the creative and, and incredible ideas these kids come up with, five, six, seven years old. And yet, I didn't apply that when I was in middle school. And I thought, and I think, you know, from reading your article, it probably would have been just as effective, if not more effective, uh, at helping motivate middle school students.
0: Oh, that's brilliant! They're on so many fronts. Exactly, that metacognition, you know, what worked for us, what didn't, how should I teach it differently next time? One, you make students collaborator, collaborators in the whole learning experience. And one of the things we learn is, is something, you know, as we said earlier, something to do with them, not something to do to them. So they feel mm-hmm. a sense of ownership. But then they love it. Middle school is naturally very curious about themselves. They're, they're wrapped up in their own egos. So they're fascinated, really, really, truly fascinated about how their brains and bodies work so if you reveal, you know, I taught this way and this is the result, or that way and that was the result, they're really into that. And who knows? You might be, make them all ambassadors uh, for going into education themselves. But they really do appreciate that that the teacher took the time to ask their opinion, because they're in this, this moment of who am I to have a voice? It's almost like proof. Mm-hmm. Rock. Do I exactly. dare? Do I dare disturb the universe? <laughs> and they really, and they go and we want to convince them, well, yeah, you have a voice, and it's an important, compelling voice that you may not have recognized up until this point, but now you really can make the contribution. And I find that when students feel like they're making substantive contribution, not just decorative, but real substantive contribution, they will be the, 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 um, the coaches, the ambassadors to make sure that lesson runs well. So one of my favorite things to do is I take some of those kids who have a lot of excess energy um, ie, they may disrupt the class a lot, and I make them co-teachers with me. And Then we do mm-hmm. it together. We plan lessons together, and they're totally engaged. They get everybody else on board. So there's a lot of ways to, to turn that negative into a positive.
1: Absolutely. Now, when it comes to motivating students, you shared several of these in your article. What doesn't work?
0: Oh yeah, holy cow! Well, there's a whole list in the article <laughs> um, that we we could list there, but a lot of the idea that you know. A lot of middle school teachers think, "Well, I got to prepare you for high school." You know, oh, we can't do that because they don't do that in high school. Now, one of the things I've lo- discovered is the, the best middle school teachers teach the student first, the subject second. They're subject experts, yeah, but they realize these kids are 12 years old first, uh, gifted or learning disabled second, or have a moderate spectrum, moderate autism spectrum of Asperger or something. Label is always second. They're, they're middle school kids first. And you're trying to help them live this one week of their lives powerfully in a robust manner to discover who they are. So when you couch things in terms of, well, this will be important in high school, let me tell you, that's not helpful. That's like wasting taxpayer money and planet Earth's oxygen. Mm. They really, really want to know, what can you do to help me this week? Because that's where their whole world is. And Absolutely. think about that. So that Absolutely. sarcasm, uh, taking kids out of PE and music to double up on math and, and uh, reading classes, you... Those elective courses and on, what we call encore classes in some schools give dimension and meaning to the academic classes, and maybe only reason that they show up. So to take them out of those things that, that where well, they're successful and they find meaning in it, you're just shooting yourselves in the collective foot. So find another way to give them extra time with reading skills and content and math skills and content, but don't take them out of the very thing that gives their life meaning and reason to go to school in the morning. There's a whole list of those there. Um if mm-hmm. you work it in the article, I would direct people to kind of
1: take a look at that. Absolutely. Okay. We have been speaking with Rick Warmly, education consultant, veteran educator, and author. Rick, if my listeners want to learn more about you and your publications, where should they go?
0: Well, they've got net, and you can skip the part about workshops and things unless you're interested in that. I'd recommend the uh, recommended resources section, because I always collect things from other people and, and articles that I've written, but also, you know, new studies from colleges and so forth that are applicable to this. Then I'm on Twitter at Warmley 2 So it's just spell out the full name and then add a okay. 2 to it, and you can follow me on Twitter.
1: Excellent, oh, excellent. Last
0: thing. I write for AMLE Magazine, so you'll see my articles there every other month, every other issue. I co-write the column with Jack Berkmeyer, bleh, Jack Berkmeyer another wonderful resource
1: excellent. Rick, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Hey, thank you for the time.
1: Stay tuned because my next guest will discuss Standards for Motivation and their book, Common Core CPR.